0: welcome to hence the future podcast i'm adam or cronin and today we're discussing mrna in the future of vaccines i just got my second dose of the pfizer vaccine for COVID 19 yesterday and this set me down a deep dive in mrna research and i wanted to find out how big of a game changer will mrna vaccines become will they prove to be effective not only against COVID 19 but also against HIV, malaria, tuberculosis, and even cancer? And are there any downsides to mRNA vaccines? In other words, are there any reasons to believe that there are short-term or long-term side effects that we should be wary of? We're gonna get into all of this in today's episode, and let's first start with the basics. What are mRNA vaccines and how do they compare to traditional vaccines that we've had in the past? The first ever vaccine that we know about occurred in China sometime between 200 BC and 1000 AD. And we have a record of Emperor Kangxi, si, who had had smallpox as a kid. And when he became an adult and became emperor, he took the steps to have his own children inoculated against smallpox. And the way he did this is he would grind up the scab of a person who had smallpox into a powder and then blow that powder into his kid's nostrils. And the reason this was effective and safer than the way you normally get smallpox is because normally you get smallpox from the moisture droplets in an infected person's breath that then comes into your system. And that's a very live culture. So it's very infectious. And there was about a 20 to 30% death rate if you got smallpox the normal way. But if you took this immunization path of having the scab of someone with smallpox scraped off, ground into a powder and blowed into your nostrils, it wasn't quite as live of a culture. It wasn't as deadly, so there was only about a two percent death rate compared to 20% death rate if you got smallpox the normal way. Fast forward to England in 1796, the next great leap in vaccinations, where an English doctor, Edward Jenner, discovered that cowpox, a less deadly version of smallpox that infects cows, could confer immunity for humans without the same sort of risk that you would get if you used the actual human smallpox version of the virus. And he discovered this because he noticed that milkmaids in their town seemed to get a mild sickness from dealing with the cows, but then afterwards they were immune against smallpox that was ravaging their town and killing a lot of people. So this doctor took a sample of the scab of cowpox from the cow's udders, and took this fluid and basically scratched it into people's skin. And by using this mechanism, they were able to immunize people against smallpox and have an even lower death rate than the Chinese method. And interestingly, the word vaccine or vaccination actually derives from the Latin word cow, which is vacca. And so vaccination literally means of the cow, showing how important this step was in the development of vaccines. The next big leap in vaccination occurred in 1879. And by this point, the process of vaccinating people had become more standardized. There was the first mass produced laboratory producing vaccines for cholera at this time. And at this point, they also injected it into you rather than scratching your skin or blowing it into your nostrils. So it was more regulated. And they also discovered by accident that if you leave a vaccine exposed to oxygen, it makes the viral part of the vaccine less dangerous. So, this is the first attenuated vaccine. Once scientists had found ways to attenuate a vaccine so the viral component is no longer as deadly, they found ways to make it even safer still. So, one new way is to inactivate the virus altogether so that it no longer has the ability to replicate itself. And this is done through exposure to heat and exposure to formaldehyde which basically kills the virus before it's injected. So there is no risk of you getting the same sickness that you're trying to prevent, or at least a very low risk. And even safer than that would be what's known as a viral vector vaccine, which is what the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine is. And so rather than using an attenuated version of the virus or an inactivated version of the virus you can use a different virus altogether that our bodies are used to. So adenovirus is the common cold. And basically they can take this virus that our bodies are familiar with, remove its ability to replicate, and then put in the proper information so it is safely delivered to our cells and our immunity has the response to deal with that infection. The benefit of viral vector vaccines is that our bodies are used to it It's a great delivery mechanism. And there's very low risk that something bad will happen because it's the common cold. And so worst case scenario, we might get some version of the common cold. However, there are some downsides to it. So because we are using the common cold virus, our body has some immunity against that. And so over time, if you keep using these adenovirus vaccines, they could become less and less effective over time The other downside to viral vector vaccines like Johnson and Johnson's is that it takes a while to develop. It's not as quick to develop as an mRNA vaccine because you need to combine some genetic information for the spike protein of COVID-19 with the adenovirus and then you deliver it. Whereas with mRNA, you only need the information for the spike protein. You don't need to carry around all of the adenovirus samples and worry about that aspect of it. Now that we've set the stage for types of vaccines up until the present, let's talk about mRNA vaccines specifically. What are they, how do they work, and how does the mRNA vaccine for COVID-19 work in particular? mRNA vaccines are unique in that They don't expose you to a live version of the virus, like in the first Chinese example. They don't expose you to an attenuated or weakened version of the virus, as in the English example. And they don't even expose you to an adenovirus or some other virus like the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. All they expose you to is messenger RNA encapsulated in a little fatty shell that is a molecule that instructs your body to make particular type of protein and some context and some biology 101 is that your DNA is your source code for your body. It includes all the instructions to make all the proteins that you need, and you are constantly making proteins. 24/7. you are producing proteins to do all types of stuff in your body. But it doesn't make sense to include the entire library of all of your source code for every little task you need to accomplish. It makes more sense to just have a little copy of your DNA code, known as mRNA, that tells the cell what type of protein to make specifically. It's like you don't need the whole GitHub library of code to write one little function. All you need is the specific instructions to write that one specific function. And because mRNA is a natural part of our bodies, it doesn't have the same issue that viral vector vaccines have where our immune system responds more and more over time. Essentially, mRNA vaccines will always be as effective as long as we deliver them in the right way. So it literally took decades of research to figure out that in order to properly deliver mRNA, which is very delicate and which can dissolve at a moment's notice, you need to A, keep it below negative 70 degrees Celsius, so very cold temperatures. That's the first big challenge. And B you need to encapsulate it in this fatty shell, a little lipid fatty cell, so that it doesn't dissolve on contact and it actually has enough time to get to the cell, deliver the mRNA instructions and start creating the spike protein. I find it's helpful to visualize what is actually taking place in your body when you're injected with an mRNA COVID-19 vaccine. First thing to note is that the reason it's called coronavirus is because the spikes are shaped like a crown. And that's what allows the coronavirus to latch onto your cells. So if you can teach your body to identify those spikes and neutralize those spikes by surrounding them, then you will be immune against COVID-19 if you're ever introduced to the whole virus. So when you're injected with the vaccine, the mRNA encapsulated in these little fatty shells go into the muscles in your arm and some of them enter the cells in your arm and they provide instructions to create this spike protein. So now, inside your arm, when it's feeling a little sore, you are creating all these spike proteins, and that's like sounding the alarm bells for your immune system. So your immune system jumps into action, it creates antibodies that surround these spikes and neutralize them. And over the next two weeks after you've been vaccinated, your body is producing more and more of these antibodies so that you are ready if you're ever exposed to a similar spike protein in the future. It's also worth noting that this process doesn't go on infinitely. You don't continue to be producing antibodies for the spike protein every single day, since you got the vaccine. It really only occurs for the first two weeks after you got the vaccine. And then if you get your second dose, you create more antibodies the next two weeks. But after that, if you're not exposed to spike proteins in the wild or through a vaccine, your body will no longer see it as a top priority. It already has some antibodies that are ready. You might have other pathogens your body is dealing with. So over time, people will lose immunity and that's the same with any sort of vaccine. There was just some new research published that shows that Moderna and Pfizer are effective against COVID-19 for at least six months. But when you look at multiple years out, 10 years out, 20 years out, you probably would lose immunity at that point because your body is always creating proteins and it's always creating antibodies and responding to what's happening in the environment. And if you're no longer exposed to one type of virus, then it's no longer a top priority for your body to produce antibodies against that virus. Now let's address some of the common myths and misconceptions about mRNA vaccines. The first and oldest misconception is that, quote, mRNA is less effective than traditional vaccines. This was the criticism for a long time, and that has been put to rest now with the data that we have seen. We have seen that from Moderna's phase three trial with 30,000 participants, it is 94% effective at preventing COVID-19. The Pfizer phase three trial had 43,000 participants. That showed 95% efficacy. And we now have real world data of people who have actually been inoculated and are in the wild living their lives. And this data from Israel shows that the Pfizer vaccine is 94% effective in the real world. So it is very clear that mRNA vaccines are highly effective. Another myth is that mRNA vaccines are less safe than traditional vaccines. And I've seen some really smart people make this point, like Brett Weinstein said that, oh, well, because mRNA vaccines are so new, I'm gonna go with the older traditional method because that has more data behind it, that's a lot safer. Another guest on Bill Maher made that same point. So it's kind of become this meme now of, hey, I don't want the mRNA vaccine because it's new, it's untested. We're not quite sure what the long-term effects are. And if anything, mRNA vaccines are safer than traditional vaccines that use an adenovirus because they don't use any virus at all. There are a small percentage of people who have experienced adverse reactions, but when you look at the data behind this, it is two to five cases per million shots given. So this is point zero 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 two percent which is orders of magnitude safer than any vaccines we've had in the past. And there are hundreds of millions of people who have already received this vaccine in 65 plus countries around the world. So if there were any real safety implications, we would know them by now. A similar criticism is that the mRNA vaccine development process was rushed and that they didn't go through all the steps they normally have to go through to get FDA approval. This is not true. There were no steps that were skipped in the development of either the Moderna mRNA vaccine or the Pfizer mRNA vaccine. The way they were able to develop it so quickly is that they stacked the different steps on top of each other. So as soon as the phase one human trials showed that it was safe and had some efficacy, they started the phase two trial. And as soon as the phase two trial showed that it was safe and had efficacy, then they started phase three trial. And as soon as phase three trial showed that it was safe and had efficacy, then they started the manufacturing process. So rather than doing them all linearly where you have to finish one step before you start the next one, They stack them on top of each other. So I think this is probably just going to be the normal way we produce vaccines going forward. It did seem way too slow the way we had produced them in the past. So there is no real reason to doubt the safety of the vaccine because of the steps taken. It went through all the proper steps and FDA had granted emergency approval for both vaccines. And later this year, they're going to likely approve general use of the vaccine beyond just the emergency approval. Perhaps the wildest myth about the mRNA vaccine is that it modifies your DNA. And some conspiracy theorists even believe that this is like a false flag operation to pretend like we're giving you this good vaccine, but really we are modifying your DNA to be able to track you or to make you into an obedient citizen or some crazy thing like that but the reality of the science of the biology is that mRNA does not alter your DNA. The mRNA vaccine doesn't even enter the nucleus of the cell where your DNA is stored. It just provides instructions for the cell to make proteins, which your body does all the time anyways. So there is no risk of DNA modification, and the government can already track you with your phone, and you can't have a microchip that's based in liquid that just doesn't make any sense. So there are so many crazy conspiracy theories out there. But if you just understand the fundamentals of the biology and what is and isn't possible with messenger RNA, you can dismiss this entire flavor of conspiracy theory. Another myth is that the lipid shells, the fatty shells that the mRNA is delivered within, are somehow dangerous. And this often comes up once you prove that there is no danger inherent to messenger RNA, then people will say, oh, but what about the fatty shells that the mRNA is encapsulated within? And some people have even said it contains antifreeze, which is a toxic substance, and this is totally false. The fatty shells that the mRNA is encapsulated within is polyethylene glycol, which is a common inert component that's found in toothpaste, shampoo, other pharmaceuticals like laxatives so it is totally safe there is nothing weird or crazy about the fatty shells the final criticism of mrna vaccines is the one i myself was the most concerned about before i had done all this research and that is that we do not know the potential negative long-term side effects and the reason this i think is the most valid concern is because It's true, we simply don't have decades of data with mRNA vaccines because they've only existed in the last year or so. However, when you look at the history of vaccines and the dangerous side effects that sometimes appear, they pretty much always appear within the first two months and that's why the FDA requires two months of data before they would approve either mRNA vaccine. And we now have far more than two months of trial data. And we now have three plus months of real world data of people who have been given this vaccine. The other thing that's just useful to remember is that your cells replace themselves many times over throughout your life. Every cell other than your neuron gets replaced. And there's one meme that says every seven years, all the cells in your bodies are replaced. That's not quite true, but it does speak to some truth, which is that your cells are constantly replacing themselves. And so there's not really any sort of long-term risk that you would create too many of these spike proteins, too many of these antibodies. If anything, it seems like scientists are concerned that it won't be effective enough. All right, now let's get into the future scenarios. Let's talk about the worst case scenario. The worst case scenario in my mind is that progress stalls after the COVID-19 pandemic subsides because we were all so focused on figuring this problem out when the pandemic is front and center in everyone's minds. But one concern I have is that once people are back to work, people are mingling, it's summer, everything is great again, I wonder if we will no longer have as urgent a need to keep making these types of discoveries and all this progress and developing vaccines as quickly as we know we can now. The other concern I have is inequality of vaccine distribution. America has vaccinated a large portion of our population, but many other countries are having a tough time. Even Canada's having a tough time. It's even more difficult for people to get vaccinations in places like Africa. And this has also side effects of if there are some places where there is not enough vaccination, those are places where the virus can mutate. And it is possible in the worst case that the virus mutates so much that our vaccines are no longer effective against them. So imagine if the spike protein mutates so it's a different shape and therefore our current vaccines aren't effective at neutralizing it. If this happens, It would be bad. We might see a a new spike of cases and deaths, but because mRNA vaccines are so quick to develop, I feel pretty confident that we would be able to respond. These companies would come out with a new vaccine based on the new variant, and we would be able to deliver effective treatment. Now let's get into the best case scenario. Best case scenario. The best case scenario is that not only are we able to effectively eradicate COVID-19, but we're also able to vaccinate people against HIV, malaria, cancer, uh, tuberculosis, all types of viruses. We could almost get to the place where we can treat viruses as well or better than we can treat bacterial infections with antibiotics. And this has kind of been one of the challenges throughout history is that We've had pretty good effective treatment against bacterial infections, but not against viruses. So mRNA vaccines could open up the floodgates of all types of treatment. In fact, there are already some being worked on right now that I'll mention. One is an HIV vaccine using mRNA. The phase one trial has already been completed. There was success. And so now Moderna is working on this. And part of the tricky thing about HIV is that It spreads rapidly throughout your body, and it targets the exact immune cells that are meant to neutralize the virus. So that breakthrough with mRNA vaccines for HIV patients is that we can instruct the cells in your body to produce what are called broadly neutralizing antibodies, which have been found among the survivors of HIV. Researchers are also working on a malaria vaccine using mRNA. Malaria is one of the deadliest diseases on the planet, and it's really good at disabling the host's immune system, much like with HIV. And so the proposed mRNA vaccine would disable the malaria's ability to disable our immune system so that our immune system can take care of the malaria. There's also mRNA cancer treatment being developed by Biontech, and they are developing a customized mRNA solution where you start by taking a sample of the cancer tissue from a patient, then you create an mRNA sequence that trains your immune system to target the specific genetic markers of that cancer. So this is almost like a combination of gene therapy and mRNA therapy. So in the best case, not only do we make tremendous progress with mRNA treatments and we can snipe down all of these various viruses, We also make progress with the science of aging and countering the effects of how the cells in our bodies age. And if we can do both of these things, we could see some serious improvements. We could reduce the suffering of millions of people around the world each year, and we could potentially double the life expectancy of the next generation. I don't think it's so far-fetched to say that we could go from age 72 average life expectancy today to age 144, life expectancy with the next generation once mRNA vaccines are fully developed, once anti-aging treatments are developed, and once we are able to build connections between our cellular cells and our macro cells. And that's really the amazing thing to me is that there's all this stuff going on in our bodies at any given time that we don't have any conscious control over. And now we're starting to build lines of communication where we can tell our bodies what to do we can now communicate with our cells and tell them what proteins to build. That is pretty amazing. And it also makes me think we may be the cells of some larger being, and maybe this larger being is making lines of communication to us. A lot to think about. Now let's get into the most likely scenario. Most likely scenario. The most likely scenario is that progress doesn't happen linearly. We make great leaps of progress one year, and then we reap the benefits of that progress for years afterwards until we make the next major discovery. And we are really lucky to be living in a time where we have just made this massive breakthrough with mRNA vaccines. And we now have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of knowledge to gain by figuring out all the various ways we can apply mRNA vaccines. And we have a lot of things to accomplish. So now that mRNA has been proven to work against COVID-19, it seems most likely to me that it will also work against a host of other viruses. So we are living in a boom time for biology, for medical science. And ultimately, I think this gives everyone more confidence in our ability to respond to dire situations, and it allows us to live with less fear. I can't wait to enjoy this summer, be outside, be with people, start traveling again. And it's really important for us to just enjoy our lives that we have here, because no matter how long we can extend our lives, if we're not enjoying the time we have, then it's all for naught. So I would like to thank all the scientists and researchers who have spent so many countless hours working on these types of problems, and I can't wait to see what the future brings us next. What has thank what you all has for listening, and I'll see you next week.